0: So today we have with us a gentleman, and I could say gentleman because we've been talking already for about 15 minutes and connecting the dots in the, in the uh, Jewish world of, of the United States. Anyway, this guy has been around industrial real estate for a long time, a major, major league pro, hyper, hyper focused, very, very successful. He is the principal of Brit Properties. He is Joel Friedland. Joel, Welcome to Street Smart Success.
1: Thanks, Roger. I love your podcasts; they're fun.
0: Thank you very much, and this will be no different. I promise. So, you know, it's funny because I, I already know half the story, um, but for the listeners' sake, you are in Chicago land. But are you born, raised? What was Joel as a kid, and and how did Joel wind up into real estate?
1: Sure. Well, uh, I'm from Highland Park, and that's a community on the North Shore, uh, near Lake Michigan. And as a kid, I cut lawns. I had a lawn business. I went out door to door in my neighborhood, and I convinced about 60 people to let me cut their lawn. And I didn't have enough time, so I hired a bunch of kids to work for me cutting lawns. And uh, it was a circus. (laughs) It really didn't. It sounds good. It was pretty tough because people are demanding, they want their lawn cut well. But while I was uh, involved in the lawn business, I got to know some people that were my customers who were in real estate. And I decided that real estate was better than cutting lawns for me. So uh, after graduating from the University of Michigan, I went to work for a family that I knew, their name was Podolsky, was a father, two sons and a daughter, and they were in industrial real estate. I was 22 and they literally took me under their wing like a family member. Even today, which is 40-something years later, I'm still very, very close with Steve Podolsky, who was my original mentor in 1981. He's an investor and an advisor and a close friend. So uh, I learned the business really from the the experts in town. They, They owned 84 industrial buildings and said, kid, we have some vacancy, go fill it. And so I became an industrial real estate broker. And day to day, I went cold calling in industrial parks and I got to know all of the industrial areas in Chicago. And unfortunately, after 10 years, they did not adopt me and I couldn't become a family member. So I started my own business and they were supportive, incidentally, which is interesting. We stayed friends and I started a business uh, with two other people, we built it up. One of my partners was a a fellow named Luce Savage. We called the company Epic Savage. You ever watch uh, The Wonder Years,
0: the TV show? I'm familiar, but I I didn't watch it. Well, I mean, it's... Yeah, Fred Savage, right? Yeah. So Fred's dad was my partner. Oh, wow. They lived in Glencoe,
1: which is the next suburb over from where I grew up. And when the kids uh, got their own TV shows, unfortunately, Lou had to make a decision, which was to stay with his family rather than to stay with me. So he moved to LA and the kids were on TV shows, I think seven years each, Fred and Ben. And I built the business up uh, to about 40 people. We were brokers. And then uh, during that time, I started syndicating properties really with the help of the who were my original mentors. They were big investors and they taught me how to be a syndicator. And I started buying and building buildings uh, when I was about 30. And we've done about a hundred of those deals. We've bought a hundred properties, other places in the country, but primarily Chicago. Uh, Chicago's a great city. It's a great industrial city. It's a great cultural city. On the Great Lakes, on Lake Michigan, we have good water, which is very important. And we have rail. We're the center of the country for rail and for trucking. So it's a 1.3 billion square foot industrial market. And if I worked every day for a million years, I wouldn't know everything here. So there's enough here to do very well in this hyper-focused industrial location.
0: Fantastic. I told you I'm a, a limited partner which is really why I do this podcast, because um, you know, I've been very, very successful at losing a lot of money. And um I'm I'm trying to really be committed to not doing that anymore because uh you and I are kind of the same age. And, you know, I just don't have that many bites at the apple. So this is my way of learning. And then it's a lot of fun to boot. And one of the things I'm learning quickly is 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 I kind of continuously take my own temperature for what suits me for sponsors to invest in as people that are hyper focused. I, all the way, uh, and you allude to it on your website, but certainly asset and geo. And if it could even be refined further, the more, the better, because it just, it just further than mitigates my risk. You know, if I'm dealing with somebody that's done uh, a great saying I heard earlier this year is I'd rather invest with somebody that's done one thing 10,000 times than somebody that's done 10,000 things. You've got the uh, the luxury of being in a market where you could do that. In other words, it's big enough and uh, sounds like conducive to that, that asset class, which is fantastic. How many, uh, in terms of, Joel, your wheelhouse, in terms of what you want to acquire, and then you could tell me what that wheelhouse is, how many buildings are there? in the market? So
1: there are 20,000 industrial companies in Chicago, in the Chicago metropolitan area, and there are about 8,000 industrial buildings. So there's a lot to work with here. We are split up into various geographic uh, sub markets, and some of the sub markets are better than others. We do what's called infill, which means very close to the city or very close to O'Hare Airport as you go farther out uh, to Wisconsin, to Indiana, which it's it's a tri-state area, the closer you get to those places, which is farther away from being infill, uh, when the market goes bad, those are the last places to lease. So there's more activity, there's more velocity, near O'Hare and in the city and near the city. And so that's what we focus on. Also, we're not institutional. We're we're entrepreneurial. So we don't want to compete with the BlackRock type people and uh, Northwestern Mutual Life and all these institutional owners. They generally like these big box. You see them when you drive down the tollway, these big box, uh, 32, 36 foot clear monster buildings. That's not our thing. We buy... Smaller buildings that are freestanding. Usually, we don't have multiple tenants. They're freestanding. And they're usually manufacturing buildings where the company that occupies the property assembles or manufactures products. And they're usually what I would call B and C. The A properties are the core properties of these big, beautiful, these curb appeal, very colorful buildings uh, with the concrete walls. We've got several of them. But the cap rates are too low and they're too risky when they come vacant. They're too big for us. Our investors like low risk. And if you have a 300,000 square foot building that comes available, there are fewer tenants. If there's 8,000 buildings, I would say that three quarters of the market occupy spaces under 50,000 square feet. And that's our niche.
0: So beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Why do you like single tenant? Or is it more a function of at that size in manufacturing, they're going to be more inclined to be single tenant? Was it the chicken or the egg that came first?
1: Well, I'm going to tell you something that you probably never heard before. It's a very different story than anybody else in real estate. The The buildings that we buy are what we call user buildings. What that means is if somebody owns a company it's let's say they manufacture, and I'm going to just throw something out there. Exhibits for children's museums. We have a tenant that does that. If you go to a children's museum, somebody made the exhibits. They're in our building in Chicago. So a building that that uh, is like that when it's they occupy what I would call a C industrial building in the city, twenty four thousand square feet, and it's privately owned. It's owned by a, a divorced husband and wife. She runs it, and he fights with her, and they pay the rent and they're great. Uh, anywhere you go in the world, you're going to see their products. You're going to see what they make if you go to a children's museum. And they're ever, every city has one. So when they leave, I have two choices. I can either lease the building or I can sell the building. If you have a multi tenant building, a user, another manufacturer won't buy it. But if it's a single tenant building, that's what they want. And there are so few buildings that ever come available, these freestanding single tenant buildings that when they do, the premium on a sale price compared to selling it on a cap rate is 30 to 40%. So if I have a building that's worth $2 million as an investment, I can sell it to the neighbor for $3 million because it's a tool for their business. Totally different model than anybody else has. Of 75 buildings that we've owned and sold, we've only sold five on a cap rate to investors. The other 70 were all sold to users. And in almost every case, the user was within walking distance.
0: Wow. That's beautiful. Are are there people that do what you do the way you do it in that market?
1: Uh, No, no. There are people who do buy on cap rates and sell on cap rates. What they do is generally they assemble a group of properties and then they sell them to an institution. And that works, by the way, during cap rate compression. That is a great business. If you can buy something in a hot market, and you buy at a six cap and you sell at a five cap, you make a 20% profit. But nobody does what we do. It takes tremendous patience. It's hard to find our kind of deals. We don't buy them from brokers. We buy them from finding them through relationships and networking. Again, if you look at the 100 buildings that we've bought, we bought three from brokers. The other 97 were off market
0: and are they do you have guys doing what you did for the Podolsky's 40 years ago or you did even to this day you guy literally door to door knocking? I've got cold
1: callers going door to door every day and it's it's a hard grind. My son's doing it. he's 27. funny story he went into a place, just sort of walked in the door didn't know if anybody was there or not there wasn't anyone sitting at the reception desk and it, this big dog attacked him. <laughs> well i've had people than... literally pull guns on us i've had people call the police on us it's a riot
0: that's funny well you know at least at least in that instance uh he wasn't ignored like you know most of the other buildings he goes into right right exactly yeah he gets you get thrown out a lot
1: do you if there's a no soliciting sign on the door which there usually is he takes that as an invitation. <laughs>
0: Well, it's the old, you know, it takes, you know, I forget the number, but you know, the, so it takes an average of 15 no's to get to a yes or whatever. And so, you know, when when I was in sales and of course I didn't, I didn't make this up, but when they'd say no, I'm, I'd be like, thank you so much for that. No, I only have 14 more to go. Yeah. Oh. That's a good
1: attitude.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. I've, tra- I've
1: trained 70 or 80. I can't tell you the exact number of brokers and acquisition people. It's a hard business. So at least 50 or more are not in the business anymore. They just couldn't make it. We find out usually within six months to two years, if they can do it or not. And of the people that I've trained in our industry, we sold our company and 20 of them work with me and they were my partners. Now they've all, they're all different places, but throughout the Chicago area, there's about 30 uh, Joel trainees and they all started by having me teach them, I take them out the first day, I take them to an industrial park and I say, follow me. I do one and then I send them to the next one.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, what are the characteristics of somebody after six months to two years that can make it versus somebody that can't?
1: Fearlessness. They have to be able to take a no. They have to not worry about rejection. They have to go door to door and if someone says, get the heck out of here. They have to say, okay, thanks. And then they, they say, that was good. That, that, what a fun experience. When when one guy had the police called on him, the, the guy said, I'm going to call the police. And the guy said, I live here. I know the police. Call him. I'd like to say hello. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Perfect. Given that dynamic, which is so interesting, because what I'm hearing is you're going in and you're buying these things under market value. Do you buy, like when you syndicate, do you buy and hold or is it, or is it a, you know, or, you know, or is it um, a flip? We
1: try to buy and hold. So this is another thing you probably haven't heard before. We buy all cash. We don't believe in mortgages. We are risk averse. In 2008, I had my fourth cycle, my fourth down cycle. It was worse than the other three. And... I can tell you any of the deals that we made that didn't work out well when we lost money, I can attribute it to debt. Any deal where the debt was low, no problem. So some people think that we're idiots and they say, well, how can you do real estate? It's a leverage business. How do you pump your returns? And the answer is there are lots of people who don't want to lose their money. And when they go with me, there's no bank. So they could lose money, but they can't lose it to a foreclosure, and they can't lose it to some sort of bad market problem because there's somebody waiting to get paid. We have infinite patience with our buildings because no debt means we've got tremendous
0: staying power. Interesting. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the PL. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the 6th largest insurance property broker in the US. If you want a roll your sleeves up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, Vice President, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467 5909, you'll be glad you did. I will tell you, I think you're the first person, well, you, you are, you're the first person, I think I've podcasted and I'm north of 200 that buys. Now you have other people that buy all cash, but then to be competitive buyers, but then they finance it You know, after it closes. You're talking about, you, you don't pull money out is what I'm hearing you say. That is Never
1: pulled. We've never pulled money out with one exception, We bought a building from Keebler Cookies, and we leased it to uh, Comcast for 15 years. And on that 15, the strength of the 15-year lease, we did a non-recourse loan for 87%. And it was a home run. It turned out that the investors made a 40% uh, IRR over a period of 15 years, and that was great. But there, there are a lot of sleepless nights and you just uh you have to decide who you are i'm not a gambler and my investors aren't gamblers and they don't need to make the the uh extra two or three points they'd rather be safe and have steady cash flow yeah by yeah. the way the wealthiest people i've got i've got several hundred investors the wealthiest people that i know when i tell them i do this all cash they say that's great i don't know anyone else who does that let's go
0: yeah I believe it well, and those people are more about you know capital preservation than somebody that's trying to starting out or what have you. So, and and then they've also probably seen a bad movie or two, so they understand the yeah. wisdom of it. would Would be my guess. Well, you know, I forget who said it. I, it might have been Andrew Carnegie. I'm I'm probably misquoting, but it doesn't matter because what's what matters is the saying, and it's this: you would rather you could either eat well or sleep well, and you would rather sleep well. Yeah. And I'm with you. Yeah, I I think that um,
1: it's just a matter of personal preference. If I talk to somebody and they say, hey, I I like making deals where my returns are going to be in the 20s. I say, well, we do occasionally have those because our statistics are that when we buy a building, because they're user buildings, we usually do flip one out of every four. So they can make that kind of return, but they're not going to make them on all of our deals. There's a lot of Baseball metaphors: um, We're not going to strike out, but we're not going to get that many home runs. But you can win a lot of games with doubles and singles, and that's been our philosophy.
0: You got you guys are Ty Cobb, not Babe Ruth, <laughs> right? All right. And so, what are a broad sense of numbers for your investors? You know, paying and you know, not leveraged, and um, you know, what does that look like?
1: Uh, we're we're looking for eight percent cash on cash returns on these all cash purchases debt-free. And generally we have annual increases. So over a 10 year period, we have what we call sticky tenants. Manufacturers don't leave, they can't afford to. They can't lose their people. They don't wanna move their machines. So when we make a deal with a manufacturer, they stay and stay and stay. And the rent goes up usually two to 3% a year. So we start out trying to be at about 8% and we try to average over a 10 year period right around nine and a quarter. Uh, cash
0: flow are you buying them are they typically leased or are you buying them when they turn when the manufact when the tenant leaves both
1: we we look at both of those we'll, we'll buy a vacant building if we love the location and the size and and the geometry in industrial there are three major things parking parking and parking mm-hmm and if the building has the proper parking lot, that means that the loading can be modified. If there's not enough loading docks, you can add a dock because there's room. The ceiling height matters a lot. But in manufacturing, it's not that big of a deal. And the smaller the building, the less important the cube is. They don't store stuff up high with big forklift trucks. So we really love buildings that... The perfect building's 20,000 square feet with two loading docks and 30-car parking. And we have about 12 of those.
0: God, you are like just dialed to the nth degree. So us, man, I talked to a lot of people. How long if you buy it vacant, how long does it take to lease generally?
1: I like to say six months or less, but I have one right now that's been over a year. This is a great story. Have you ever heard of the um, duty-free shops in the airports? You
0: know, it's the second time in a week <laughs> that's come up in conversation. I don't remember the other time, but yes, the answer is yes.
1: So I stumbled into a building that's about one minute from O'Hare Airport that was on the market with a broker out of Florida, which doesn't make any sense. He didn't have it listed here. And um, I, I found the property and it's in a place, it's in Chicago, but it's next to Rosemont, Illinois, which is where the, it's, there's, there's an entertainment district and hotels and restaurants Uh, a lot of office buildings, and it's just a great location. And I called this broker in Florida. I said, I saw this obscure listing and he said, oh, it's owned by the family that owns the duty-free shops. It used to be their warehouse for O'Hare. And about five or six years ago, they lost their lease or something happened at O'Hare and they didn't need the building anymore. And they kind of forgot that they owned it. And I said, they what? He said, yeah, they're billionaires. They it's a little tiny million dollar building. They 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 just haven't done anything with it. I said, "I'll take it." So the guy flies in from Florida with his assistant, nice young woman who follows him around and the two of them uh went to lunch. We walked to lunch from where the building is. That's what the, the location's so great. And it just has some physical problems. It it didn't look pretty. Uh so curb appeal's important. It was dirty. The lighting was bad. So we've had to fix it up. So it's taking longer to lease it because supply chain and construction slowdowns all around the country affect us too. We can't even get concrete. We can't get roofing material. We had to put a new roof on it. So sometimes it takes a while because we have to fix it up. And that's what we're doing on that one. But we have three tenants who want it. And we're just trying to figure out which one to go with. I see. It took a
0: while. It's interesting because the way you're describing it is just it. It's they're they're not going to sit for five years. There's too much demand. So on the on the ones that there's a tenant in place, so is it pretty, you know, realistic or pretty, uh, you know, run of the mill that you know the your investors will clip an eight percent out of the gate?
1: Well, some of our older deals they're making less because we bought them pre two thousand eight, and there were troubles in 2008 and we had some funds. And and so the basis on some of our older buildings are at a reasonable level, but the fund didn't do great. So, because we ran into the great recession. So there are certain deals that we have that are older deals where they're only making 6%. Uh, we've got some great tenants in those buildings, but on their own, they're, they're better than 6%, but the return to the investors, uh, you know, I'm very honest with my uh, investors. When I meet new investors, I tell them, look, the reason that you should uh, hear what I have to say is because i got lots of negativity. <laughs> i had a lot of very rough experiences. I, I ended up literally in a depression on the couch because I thought I was really rich and I thought I had done so great and I had so many buildings and all these loans and seven banks. And it was just a lot, like it was a mountain of activity. But when things go bad, those mountains don't do well. So some of our deals are are really only paying six and 7% right now. And I wish they were paying eight, but they're steady. We have a building in the city. Uh, the US Postal Service is our tenant and Instacart. That's a grossly, grocery delivery company. Yep. So those are our two tenants in the building and the investors are only making six. But it's in an area where I think the value's going up. It's next to something called the Fulton Market, which was our old meatpacking area. Yep. When I bought the building in 2007, there were hookers, drug deals on the corner, condoms on the ground. And I looked at this building and I said, one day this is going to be a nice location. And it is. Uh, But I bought it in 2007. So I paid a high price, put a mortgage on it, and we had to recover. So the investors are doing great now, but it took a while. When, when so stick you, with it. Stuck with it. Perseverance.
0: When you, did you when you describe that that on the couch moment was that oh uh, eight? Uh,
1: it was oh eight through uh, eleven.
0: Oh, so, so you were on the really couch for three years. Shape. What's that? So You were on the couch for three years.
1: More or less, it was hard. It was hard to do anything other than struggle to get through the day because seven lenders were at our doorstep. Mm. And we did nothing wrong. We just had buildings that like everybody else's at the time weren't worth what we, and and that's by the way, when I was doing 50 and 60% loans and when values go down, a 60% loan becomes an 80% loan. Right. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so risk averse today is that's just not anything I want to repeat. You know, I remember the pain of the losses and I don't need any bank calling me and telling me, "Hey, you got to pay your loan down. The economy's bad."
0: So you're sitting there at this point, you're you're looking at a lot of people and you're just nodding your head going, "Good luck."
1: Yeah, I, I don't wish anybody right bad will, but I can tell you that I still have some old mortgages. Our our, our loan to value ratio right now on average is 17%, but I haven't bought a building with a mortgage. Uh Since 2019.
0: Mm -hmm. So interesting. Huh. I mean, there's a lot of guys, which you, you you know, I would probably know this, but there's a ton of people, seems like, especially in the multifamily world that are just doing, you know, super high uh, leverage bridge debt, assuming rents are going to keep going up forever, uh, assuming they were assuming like the mantra a year ago and a year and a half ago you'd have these people going you know yeah interest rates they're not they might they'll go up a little bit cuz they have to but yeah. but you know geniuses right yeah uh, geniuses the one thing they all have in common is they were wrong and so you know so there's going to be a lot of um there's going to be distress um you said had funds past tense
1: yeah uh, we only do individual buildings now our investors like to pick and choose what they invest in a, a blind pool to me has a lot of risk because the sponsors or investors have to put the money out and they make the decision and they don't have my committee is my investors who say yes or say no. And if it's a good deal, I get a lot of yeses. And if it's a bad deal, I learn about it pretty quickly because nobody wants it. So we, we syndicate individual deals. We do not do funds at all. Mm-hmm. And I have no interest in funds. I can uh, buy a building uh, we we buy it with internal money. We close and then we syndicate slowly. We have no rush to syndicate uh, because we use uh, we have a group of us that put the cash up to buy the buildings. and then syndication can take as long as it takes for me to pick and choose the investors that I want to have in it.
0: Hmm. Why do sponsors uh, raise funds? Why say that again? Why, why do sponsors you know do funds? Um, it's
1: easier. It's like a hundred times easier. There's nobody looking over your shoulder telling you that you shouldn't buy that building or you shouldn't finance at this level. They have no say. Investors have no say. So it's, uh, so you're a dictator. You're like, you're like Putin. It's like, I'll do what I want. It's my fund. You gave me your money. And I just don't think that, uh, that, that model is good for my type of investor. I have very sophisticated investors and I Show them the pro forma, and I show them what the building is and who the tenant is, and they make their own decision. And not every deal is for every investor, mm. but I figured out the ones that they like that we can buy all cash, have good cash flow, and that pretty much resonate with everybody. Now the landscapers are cutting my my
0: grass. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good that you're being serviced today. I mean, people are showing up, especially in our the, neighbor environment. You yeah. must have done something right. Do you, what I've heard is that that people lay that to your point about e- it being easier raising funds is that the easiest part and the the motivation is is specifically the fundraising, so they don't have to keep going to the well every time they do a deal, and it just makes it easier. And then it makes them better acquirers because they already have the money, you know, tied up, ready to commit. Yeah,
1: that could be. I mean, we we did four funds, and that was true. But today, I, I'm not interested in that. I can raise the money from a group of people when I find the right deal.
0: What is the average length of a lease on, you know, and single tenant manufacturers?
1: Pretty short. Um, Manufacturers like flexibility. So the average is about five years. We occasionally get a 10-year lease, rarely anything longer than 10, and sometimes two and three-year renewal uh, periods. Usually a tenant, we have a tenant that... um, manufactures uh, protein bars. He was on Shark Tank in year one. Uh, it's called Element Bars. If you okay. want to watch the episode, the, guy, the guy's name is Jonathan Miller. He, they loved him in year one. And he makes these protein bars and he signed a four-year lease because he really wanted to buy a building and couldn't find one. <laughs> this guy's out here blowing blowing leaves. Can you hear him?
0: I can't hear him. Oh, good. Good. No.
1: So uh, Jonathan likes to go in increments of three years and four years for the sake of having flexibility.
0: So who was a shark? Or, or did uh, he get funded?
1: Well, he, he made a deal with a guy named Kevin Harrington, who was the guy that sat in Mark Cuban's chair the first year because Mark Cuban wasn't on the show. Okay. And then ultimately, he actually didn't make the deal. Very often, they don't make the deal.
0: That's interesting. Cause, cause the
1: devil's in the detail. And they have to negotiate the contract after the show. And very often, they just the, the negotiations break down and they can't make a deal.
0: So that I did not know.
1: So oh. it looked like he made a deal on TV, but he actually did not.
0: I see. How many deals a year do you do or however you want to define that?
1: Our goal is to buy seven a year.
0: Why seven? The last couple
1: of years. Why seven?
0: As opposed to six or 10, why, why, an odd number.
1: Um, it's a very interesting thing our projections when we put them out to our investors they ask how many do you do and we've looked back at, oh, over the years and our average is 7 i see okay so, <laughs> so seven's the number
0: has it become more competitive which was somewhat rhetorical somewhat rhetorical has it become more competitive i would assume so but and then who are you competing with are you competing with owner users on, on like who, what does all that look like
1: we are uh almost always competing with user buyers and when we do what we bring to the table that they don't bring is very often those are people who do uh, special financing with the sba and it takes extra long and they're not sure sure that they're going to buy it and they're unsophisticated we just come in and we say we'll buy it here we go contract all cash 30-day diligence so we're an easy buyer but we do compete with users. And right now it's extremely difficult. The The vacancy rate is 3.5% in Chicago, which means very few buildings are available. So at this point in time, I'm having trouble finding the kind of deals I like. Uh, if seven is the number I want to do, perhaps this year uh, we'll buy four.
0: I see. So you're disciplined and you don't have a gun to your head. What's the average amount your uh, investors put in on per deal?
1: Average is 100,000. I tell people that uh, I don't want them to invest any more than between one and three percent of their personal net worth in anything that we do, and I like the one percent. So if someone's got two and a half million dollars of net worth, uh, I don't want them putting more than twenty-five thousand in a deal. I don't think it's right for them. I don't think it's fair. Mm. In fact, I don't think it's—I don't think it makes any sense. And and I'd rather have them in four deals that we do in the same year for twenty-five thousand each than in one deal for a hundred thousand. But there are some people who it depends on your net worth. I there are people I have who a million dollars is one percent. Yeah, I have other people where two hundred and fifty thousand dollars is one percent. So if someone's got a twenty-five million dollar net worth, they're not a twenty-five thousand dollar investor. Although they might be because when I meet new people and they they want to get involved, sometimes they could be very very wealthy and say, "I'll put twenty-five thousand in two of your deals just to check it out." To me, that's like a vacation that I don't take with my wife for the weekend. And I'm checking you out. And we're happy to do that because when they get to know us, they become $100,000 in the next deal or two fifty in the one after that.
0: Mm. That's a fascinating conversation.
1: What is what is Brit? Brit? I have two stories. Uh, the name Brit? Yeah. Um, have you ever heard of a circumcision?
0: <laughs> speaking, speaking about rhetorical questions... The,
1: the Hebrew word uh, for the ceremony is called a Brit. It's a Brit Milah. That's the circumcision. And it's spelled B-R-I-T. So I had sold my company. We had a company that had 40 people. We sold to TransWestern, which is a bigger company out of uh, Houston. And after I sold the business, I had a contract and I had to stay there for a while. But when the contract ended, I decided to go start my own new business. And this was uh, about eight years ago. And I said to my wife, what are we going to call the new company? And we went to services for the Jewish New Year for Rosh Hashanah. And the rabbi was giving a sermon talking about the breet on the pulpit. And I said, I leaned over. I said, how do you spell that? And she said, I don't know, B-R-I-T. I said, let's call the company that. I like a nice short four-letter name. Now, the second story is <laughs> we, we had a young man as a property manager who was working for us. Brad. And I came to the office the day after the service. And I said, Brad, we're, I have a name for the new company. It's Brit, B-R-I-T. He said, where'd you come up with that? I said, Brad really is terrific. <laughs> and he said, oh, I said, well, that's kind of it. But <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. Let's say that. <laughs> let's say that. So it really came from
0: two two different Uh, sources. I understand. Okay. Well, fair enough. Listen, Joel, how would one, if if one wants to find out more about BRIT, perhaps Engage, et cetera, et cetera, how how would one do that? BRITproperties.com. B-R-I-T, one T, -T,
1: properties.com.
0: Got it. My first interview, the guy does all cash and uh, and also named his company after a circumcision. <laughs> all right. All right. We're all good. And I uh, w- would love to do this a, a year from now. And uh, happy Thanksgiving and all that stuff. And uh, thank, you. thank you so much.